All right, church. Well, hey, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, happy holidays. I think it's official. Uh, they're here. And uh, man, I'm really, really grateful to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I get to serve as the teaching pastor here, with, which I'm just tremendously grateful for. It's so good to worship with you uh, each and every uh, week. Uh, today, we're starting a new series that's going to carry us through Christmas Eve, um, and that series is called Love's Pure Light. Uh, and so we're, we're going to get into that. Before we get into the text, we've got a couple housekeeping uh, things just to address and, and just so you're aware of, keep them on your radar, all right? Also, I want to say if you're a guest, man, so thankful uh, that you've chosen to join us this morning. Uh, you get to be a part of the little family meeting here uh, early on, which I know you were really hoping for. Uh, it's a strange introduction, but here we go. So uh, just so you know, um, out at Guest Central, which is the table out in the lobby, uh, we have for you budget summaries for 2024. All right, uh, budget summaries, and, and as I say that, and there's just sheets of paper out there, those budget summaries, it's important to know that LifePoint, we are one church in six locations, okay? And so we are in Lewis Center, we are in Delaware, Westerville, Plain City, Worthington, and here in Marion. And so when you look at that budget summary and you look at the number on the bottom, you're going to go, wow, right? Praise God, he's given us a lot of resources, but that means we, we've got almost 5,000 people that the Lord has, has brought to this church that we can, Lord willing, make disciples of uh, and multiply those disciples. And so I just want you to be aware, right, when you, when you look at that, um, that's all campuses, right? Marion just represents a fraction of that, and praise God, God has been so good uh, to give us resources to do ministry with. If you have any questions about those budget summaries, I'd love to meet with you, talk uh, with you about that. Again, you can see those out at the lobby. I will also say, uh, we're going to two services. I know we've talked about this over and over again. Uh, you're probably annoyed about it at this point. However, uh, we still need folks um, in our LifePoint Kids teams and our security teams in order for two services to work. Uh, two services, uh, the reason for that, I've, I've said it over again, over and over again, we don't want to burn out folks um, who are serving in LifePoint Kids, and frankly, um, we're getting there. Um, and I, I just don't want to be that church. Um, and it's really easy to do, but I want to do everything we possibly can to help um, oftentimes those young moms who are serving down in kids after they've been with their kids all week long, serving kids. And so we need some more folks to step up. Praise God, so many already have. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And yet we've got a few more yet to go. Same situation with security. Uh, I would also say uh, we do have a membership class coming up, so just be aware of that, okay? So uh, that membership class is after service today. If you didn't sign up, that's okay. We'd still love to see you there. All right, so that's sort of the housekeeping things going on. Uh, again, we're in a new series called Love's Pure Light, and in this series, we're going to be going through Colossians chapter 1, all right? All, these, all four weeks of this series, Colossians chapter 1, okay? And we're going to have sort of a different big idea uh, each and every week, and, and I'll get to that here in a second, but um, this, this series is going to take a little bit more of a traditional Advent approach. Now, if you're like me and, and you have no idea about church stuff, uh, because I didn't grow up in it, uh, the word Advent uh, means Adventus. Um, and, and really, it's a, it's a Latin word that means the arrival or the coming of. Okay, and so when we use this word Advent, what that means is we are anticipating the coming of or the arrival of someone, namely Jesus. Right, and so Christmas is really about the arrival of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the anticipation of that arrival. And so in this season, what we should be doing is, is really assessing our own hearts to say, has Jesus arrived in my own heart? Is, do, I, do I know who Jesus is? Do, do, am I excited 
about the guy in the red suit and all the, the lights and stuff, or am I excited about what Christmas means, that hope has come into the world? And that's really the big idea of this week. Each, again, each week's going to have a different big idea, but this week what we're going to talk about is that Jesus gives us hope, right? Jesus brought us hope. Now, what you see oftentimes as well when it comes to Advent is sort of, again, church tradition, uh, of which I know little of, um, but you'll see it's associated with candles, and these candles have a symbolic meaning, uh, and what they really mean is they're symbols of, of light coming into the world. And so each week, we're going to have these different candles, and they represent different things, and the candle, if you will, for this week is, is that of hope, the candle of Hope. I will say as well, on Christmas Eve, they're going to have two services, one at 9.30 and one at 11. We're going to do a candlelit service, which I'm super excited about. And you might say, well, it's morning. I was going to say, here, here's what I would say to that as well, is we, we really don't need candles for light anyway because we have electricity. And so it's not, it's not about the function. It's about the significance, right? And so we're, we're going to come and gather together Christmas Eve, and we're going to light candles together as a representation that hope has come into the world. And I'm really, really excited about that. And again, we'll have these different candle meanings throughout the week. So if you have a Bible with you, awesome. Uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it on the screens. Uh, I will say as well, we have an app, and you can follow along with notes on the app uh, should you choose to do so. We would love, love to have you do that. All right, I'm going to, um, I know we prayed, but we should just always pray in church. And so I, I need help this morning. And so let's pray uh, before we get into the text. Lord, we need you this morning, we trust you this morning, we praise you this morning, that we get to gather together each and every week. It's just, it's stunning. We look at the rest of the world and, and we get to roll in here in this way and God, we, we praise you for that. God, as we open your word, would you open it to us? Would you help us understand? And, and God, you promise that your word has the power to transform us, to pierce our hearts. And so God, we ask that it would do that in us this morning, that we would be a transformed people chasing after you, God, as you, through Christ, have chased after us. We need you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the text says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. All right, so a little bit of context, a little bit of set the scene here for us. Uh, Colossae is an ancient city in what is now modern-day Turkey. All right, so geographically, that's sort of where we're located and oriented. I would say as well that Colossae is, is actually a smaller city at this time. It has a history of being a very large city. At, at this time, it, it's ruins. But at the time of Paul, it, it was a smaller city. It wasn't this massive center. And, and it says here, Paul writing, so Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He has this miraculous calling, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. He's appointed and made an apostle to go and share the gospel with Gentiles, Gentiles being those who are not of the Jewish faith or heritage, and that is Paul's primary job. And so we can know that this, this church in Colossae is made up largely of non-Jews. There certainly would have been Jews who lived in Colossae at the time. And I know a couple things he says here I, th I think that are, are of note. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Now, when we hear people being described as saints in our modern day culture, I think what we assume is that these are like super Christians. These are like the people who are like, they, they just, they, they serve and they do all the things and they probably give away a bunch of money or something. And, and people just look at them and are like, you're awesome. Here's the thing that's not a biblical definition of saint. 
Just to be clear, a biblical definition of saint is someone who has faith in Jesus. So here's what this means. Congratulations, y'all are saints. You've been, you've been made saints. So that's really cool, right? Like, I should be like, okay, not because we're awesome, but because Christ has worked in us, right? And so he's saying to all the believers, that's the definition of saint. It's not some committee. It's not some, certainly not something we should worship, right? A saint is a believer in Jesus. And then he does make a distinction, though. He says to the faithful excuse me, brothers, and in, if you look in the original language, sisters is implied as well, so women in the room, don't be offended here. This is to, to both men and women. And so I think it's important to note, well, why does he call out faithful brothers? Well, it gives us a little bit of an insight into what was happening in the church at Colossae at this time. You see, there is this false religion, false doctrine, false teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the concept or the idea that in order to be saved, you need special hidden knowledge that only a select few elite have. And if you have that knowledge, then you will be saved. Gnosticism does not outright reject Christ. Gnosticism rejects the notion that faith alone in Christ alone is what saves your soul. And so what he's saying here is to the faithful brothers and sisters... Those who have remained steadfast in the teaching of the gospel, that is who he was writing to, to encourage. And so then what that also tells us is that this entire book of Colossians is this magnificent work that if you go home and read it today, which I know you can't wait to do, what you will find is that this book speaks to the majesty, to the glory, and to the beauty of Christ and his sufficiency as the God-man who came to earth and saved our souls. It's stunning. It ignites worship. It really should. So that's the background. That's the context. That's where we are. So now we get into verses 3 through 8, and I'm going to read them all for us. And then we're going to work through things here. So I'm going to read all six. It says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I read the Apostles, uh, Apostle Paul's writing, I read it and then I'm like, I know this is really important, but I'm not really sure what he just said. Am I alone there, or is it just me? Thanks, guys, for being relatable. I appreciate that. I had one in the back. I appreciate you. Right? And so you read this, and you're like, I'm not really sure exactly what he is saying. And so what I want to do is sort of work through this text and say, okay, Paul, what, what is your logic here? Like, where, where are you going with this? What is the central point? And so I think to do that, um, what we can see here is, is he sort of, he, he, he almost starts at the end. We have to start at the end to trace his logic. In verse 8, he says, if you'll recall, he is a, uh, verse 8, well, here it is, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so we get this idea that he's talking about Epaphras, uh, which we also saw uh, in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, your beloved fellow servant. So what, what the idea we get here is that Epaphras, this guy who has planted this church in Ephesus, excuse me, Colossae, he has then gone to the Apostle Paul with a report of what is happening in this church. Right? He's saying, the Apostle Paul is currently in prison in Rome at this time. 
And he's going to Paul, he's either writing him or going in person and saying, you've got to just hear about this incredible church and what God is doing through the gospel in this church. And the things that he seems to be emphasizing, what are they? Verse 8 again, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And so the idea here we get is that this Epaphras again goes to Paul and he says, you've got to hear about how they're loving people. This is awesome, Apostle Paul. It's all stemming, right, from from faith in Christ. This is incredible, the love that they have for people. Now, I know I said a minute ago that this morning was about hope. And so now I'm saying, wait a minute, it's actually about love. And so where is this going here? Is this about hope? Is this about love? And again, I know you're you're asking that, poking that, because I was asking that this whole week of how in the world is this passage about hope when Epaphras seems to be emphasizing love? Well, let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Again, we're just tracing the Apostle Paul's train of thought. Stick with me here. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So if if I'm tracking the Apostle Paul's train of thought here, what it seems seems to be here, and again, this sort of blew my mind this week, is that what Paul is saying, yeah, I see your love. That's great. Way to go, church at Colossae. Great job. However, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven that you are therefore then having faith in Christ and loving others. That seems to be the logical flow that Paul is processing here. And again, I had to call multiple other teaching pastors from different campuses this week because I was like, am I wrong? Am I a heretic here? Is that what he's saying? I think what Paul is saying here is that the hope of heaven is the root from which faith and love are produced. The hope of heaven is the root from which faith and love are produced. And church, there are stunning implications to that. I just want to show you here what is happening. So I think we have to ask a couple questions. Well, what does he mean by hope? Because I think we have a natural assumed definition of hope in our current culture, right? Usually when we talk about hope, we talk about it in something we want to happen in the future, but we're not really sure if it will happen. Maybe this is too soon, but just about everybody of us in the room, except for a select few, will say, I hope that next year Ohio State beats Michigan. But given the the past three years, it might not seem as though that's going to happen. But we hope so. It's not a very confident hope, is it? It's not a very assured hope. Is, Is that the kind of hope Paul is talking about? No, no, no. Not at all. Paul is talking about something far different when he uses this word Hope, and the way that it ended up making sense in my brain is I thought about uh, dinner with my kids. I mean, so every, pretty much every night, my family, uh, my wife Maddie, who's just up here singing, and our two boys, uh, Theo and Liam, um, they, we eat dinner together pretty much every night. And every night, whether we're with people or we're out somewhere, every single time, just about, we have to say over and over again, what, parents of young kids, eat your food. Would you eat your food? Right? Eat your food, eat your food, eat your food, eat your food, over and over and over again as our three-year-old is rolling underneath the floor. Right? Like, what are you doing under there, son? Except on Fridays. On Friday, yeah, on Friday we do something called family dinner. Now, again, we eat together pretty much every night of the week, but family dinner is associated or connected to our family Sabbath. 
And so we create this sort of experience around family dinner every Friday, and it comes with homemade pizza, which is awesome. But here's the thing. After pizza comes what? Ice cream. Every single time, as long as they eat their food. You know what we don't have to say to our boys on Friday nights? Each food, each food, each food. They're like, hey, I'm done. Can I have ice cream? Yes, you can. Here's, here's the point. The promise of ice cream is assured because of the faithfulness of Maddie and I to make good on that promise. And so because they know ice cream is coming, when they eat the pizza, it changes and directs their behavior. They have a confident assurance of what is to come that that impacts what they do in the moment. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this confident assurance of heaven. And when we say heaven, what we mean is unity with God, how we were designed and created to exist, peace. Heaven is assured. It is a confident hope that then directs what? Faith and love. Hope is the fruit from which faith and love are produced, right? And so then I think we have to ask, well, again, what, what, is, what is it that they're hoping of? And it's what I just said. It, it, heaven is the experience and, and for all eternity where there is no more pain, where there is no more fear, where there is no more, no more anything bad but just Jesus in his presence. And that is an assured guarantee to me and to you, church. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's stunning. Right? Amen. That should change our behavior. Now, here's the thing. Here's what really really hit me this week in such a way that I was like, I am not sure what to to do with this. You see, if, if hope bears fruit... That can be really, really beautiful, because that's what's being said here. Hope is bearing fruit in faith and love. But hope bears fruit. And so here's the question. If the right hope, the hope of heaven, produces in us faith in Jesus and love towards others, what will be produced in our lives if we're focused on the wrong hope? The principle here is that hope produces fruit. And so if we're focused on the wrong hopes, what is the fruit that will be produced in our lives? That is the question, church. You see, we we live in a time, we've talked about this a whole lot. We live in this unique time where where our primary focus is oftentimes expressive individualism, whatever that means to you. We've all heard of the phrase, the American dream, have we not? And typically the way the American dream is defined to us is get a lot of possessions, get a nice house, have some kids, manicure your yard, go crazy and get a golden doodle, right? That if, in the, the hope... The hope that is promised you is attain all of that, you will find satisfaction for your soul. Because here's the thing, our souls are all longing for satisfaction. We saw that back in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into every man's heart. What that means, church, is you and I are hardwired to have a desire for God. The problem is, because we are cursed by sin, we try and reject God, and find our own sources of satisfaction. And so when we say, oh, the American dream, that will make me satisfied, that will make me happy, the, what, what, what happens is what's the fruit of that? We, we, we work so much, we neglect our families. We buy so much, we're drowning in debt. 
We, we consume so much and, and cultivate so much that we envy our neighbors instead of love them. And the fruit of that is this deep feeling of dissatisfaction because it's never enough because things were not designed to satisfy your soul. God was. Now, others of us in the room might understand that definition of the American dream to be antiquated or out of date. And so what you might think of or might, might say is, well, hope, well this, this promise of the American dream, I think, is defined in a younger generation as what I said before, this concept of expressive individualism and personal human flourishing above and beyond all things. And so what that then looks like for us, there's a, a, a fantastic book called Our Secular Age that diagrams all of this. It's, it's so good. I would highly recommend it to you. Um, what that essentially says is, you do you, whatever that means to you. And again, we've talked about that. And the outworking of the American dream for the next generation is often, I'm just going to pursue whatever it is I want to pursue to the absolute fullest. And the promise that I'm given, the hope that I'm going toward is, if I just go for it with everything I have, with no bounds, no limits, no supervision, no oversight, that will satisfy me. And the fruit of that is a disenchanted, disengaged, anxious, and depressed generation. And I'm not saying if you struggle with anxiety or depression that that is only the result of, of sin in your life. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus and still struggle with anxiety and depression, to be clear. And yet, I think we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room that the pursuits that have been put forward, especially for the younger generation of you do you, is killing them. It's not good for us to be in control. We weren't designed to be. I've got a sweet 1995 Toyota pickup. It's awesome. If I drive up to a construction site and I go to this massive excavator and say, load me up, he's like, are you sure? Yeah. And he takes like a 10-ton chunk of earth and drops it in the bed of my truck. What's going to happen? It's going to get crushed because my truck wasn't designed to carry 10 tons of earth. You and me, we are not designed to carry the meaning and the purpose of our lives. We are designed to follow God's meaning and purpose of our lives, which is to glorify Him, submit to Him, and do what it is He has called us to do. And so then, church, comes the question, okay, okay, I hear you, stop. You know, what, what do I do? It comes this point of despair. Some of us in the room are, are feeling this. I have, I have attained it all. I've got the perfect American dream life, and I am hopeless. I'm doing me and I am hopeless. How do I get this great hope? How do I have satisfaction in my soul? Here's what I'd say is that if you want to see a change of, of fruit in your life, you need to change and adjust the ultimate hope of your life. We've got to make a change. And then you ask, okay, well, how, how do I change the ultimate hope of my life? This is what I've been promised and promised and pushed and marketed to my entire life. How do I just change? What I love about the Bible is it brings up these really difficult, hard questions, and then it answers them. I think we actually see it in the text this morning, which is awesome. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here's what that means, church. A right understanding of the gospel will transform you. It will shape you. If you want to to transition and, and shift the hope of your life, what you must do is have a deeper and more complete and more full understanding of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. This is all of our natural condition. Just, just, just look at this. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the possessions, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and, and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jump to verse 12. For we are his workmanship. Excuse me, uh, verse 12. Here it is. Uh, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That church is our natural condition alienated from the promises and the presence of God because of our sin, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, which is the promises of God because of our sin. That is all of our natural condition. And as soon as we realize it, it will shift our hope. As soon as we understand that we are dead, lifeless beings in desperate need of a savior, suddenly the promise of the American dream fades and the promise of the gospel rises. Look at the promise of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Those are two drastically different outcomes. For the second, an inheritance guarded for you in heaven You have to first understand that you need saved from the penalty of your sin, that you need the grace of God, and that only Jesus can extend that to you because only Jesus could take upon himself the wrath of God, satisfy the wrath of God the Father for my sin and for your sin. And when we come to this point of of understanding that, I believe we'll have a right focus and a right hope. Last point this morning. To be driven in this life by a hope that is laid up for us in heaven, we must be convinced in this life of the gospel extended to us through Christ. Right? If we understand what we've been saved from, this is actually the last point, we'll have a better appreciation of what it is we've been saved to. And so here in a moment, church, what we're going to do is we're going to baptize a couple of folks, which I am just pumped about. Because what this means, church, as these, as these two who are just dear friends are being baptized, what they're saying publicly to you is that they have a hope fixed in heaven, not a hope that can be bought or purchased or manufactured in any way, but a hope that is fixed in heaven. 
And church, as we go baptize, and then we're going to sing, if you need to repent this morning, repent. If you need prayer this morning, pray. We have a team who wants to work with you and walk with you. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good and you're so faithful to bring us together this morning, to challenge us with your word, to convict us. Father, I ask this morning that you would guard and protect the two who are being baptized, who are saying, I have been saved by Jesus and I am living a new and different life because of who Jesus has made me to be. They are not perfect. They are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, but Jesus, you call them yours. And they are co-heirs with Christ. Their sins are as far as the east is from the west. You have good work set before them to do. You have begun a work in them, Jesus, and you will bring it to completion. And church, if you're here this morning and you want a work done in you, the step that you have to take is to say, I can't do it, but Jesus can. It's a surrendering to the power of the gospel that transforms us, that makes us into new people, that makes us into new creations. God, we don't know what's best for our life, but you do. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us that, God. That you are Lord. That my plan is not the best plan, but Jesus, your plan is the only plan that saves our souls. God, we love you. I praise you for mornings like this. I praise you for your word. It is so good to cut us and then to point us to you, Jesus. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.